Hello and welcome to Dublin City Gallery, the Hewlin. Yes, indeed, here we are in the glorious sculpture hall in the very heart of the gallery. I've just walked past the Harry Clark stained glass work, The Eve of St. Agnes, all dark blue with nocturnal goings on. And we are now sat in the splendour of this marbled hall. We're here tonight as part of Dublin Book Festival, our annual outing with Ireland and beyond's great authors. With me are two writers who are part of a renaissance of writing by women uh, from or about Northern Ireland. They are Louise Kennedy, author of the acclaimed novel Trespasses and the short story collection The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac, and Wendy Erskine, who has given us the short story collections Sweet Home and Dance Move, and a new book on art called Well, I Just Kinda Liked It. Uh, Welcome to both of them. I, I think when Wendy speaks, nobody will be surprised at my saying Northern Ireland about her. I think when you speak, first of all, Louise, they might be surprised that I'm linking you into Northern Ireland. So we b- better get that little bit of biography. My treacherous Southern accent. Yes, your um, treacherous Southern accent. Um, yeah, so I uh, was born in Belfast and grew up in Hollywood and lived there until I was 12. And then we moved to the south where... Um, Every time I opened my mouth in my new school, I was met with a chorus of hi and I, Brian Kai, and it wasn't as good as that. Um, and um, yeah, I was like um, suffering terribly and uh, sick of being different, so I was able to change my accent really quickly. And now I deeply regret it because when I have to read from my uh, book that's set in the north, I have to put on a northern accent for the dialogue. <laughs> But the, the, the shame of it. But clearly the northern accent was rolling around in your head because there's no question but that Trespasses is a northern Irish story set in Northern Ireland with very northern Irish characters. Do you think of yourself as a northern Irish writer? Um, I think of my, okay, well, just I think of myself as a writer from the north of Ireland. Um, yeah, so um, I don't know. I think maybe my um, inner voice is probably very northern. I think I think like a northerner if there's such a thing. You probably understand what that is. Um, but um, yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I'm a writer from the north who has been living in the south for very long for, time, for, yeah. For, for quite a while. And yeah. uh, Wendy, um, maybe give us a little bit of your background and you won't have to say anything more than probably where you're from and we'll know that you're from there. Yes, I'm from Belfast. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm from Belfast and I've lived most of my life in Belfast. I moved to Glasgow in 1986, went to university there, spent a little bit of time working in England, I worked as a teacher there, and then moved back again in 1997. Um, but other than that little, little jaunt to Scotland and England, I've been in Belfast my entire life pretty much. Yeah, and only a Belfast woman would say she'd been on a little jaunt like that. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a very Belfast expression. Does, does that, um, that label then, because that's, I suppose, in some ways what it is, a Northern Irish writer, or as Louise would say, a writer from Northern Ireland, does it have, uh, does it have positives, does it have negatives attached to it? I think it's got positives and I think it's got negatives. I think it's got positives because um, you're maybe presenting a group of people that haven't been super visible in, in fiction before. So that's a real, that's a real positive. Um, but what's not good for me is if it just becomes like local colour literature, if people are saying, oh, it's great because you gave me a great idea of that little street, you know, I know that butcher shop, I know the one that you're talking about, it's near the beauticians and so on. 
Um, and then I kind of think to myself, well, why not just look in Street View? You know, if all my if all my stories are doing is giving you a vivid sense of what's where, that's kind of not enough. It's just that local colour literature thing. So on the one hand, I do think, Sean, that, you know, I'm trying to give a very vivid sense of place and locale. But on the other hand, what and it sounds so pompous to say it, but on the other hand, what I'm trying to do is produce stuff that's kind of fairly universal, you know? Um, yes, these people live in Belfast, and there might be ways in which their lives have been very much shaped by the political conditions under which they found themselves. But to a large extent, it's loneliness, isolation, alienation, disappointment. It's all those sorts of universal things that people can kind of, you know, um, get into anywhere, really. There seems to have been, though, I think it's safe to say, kind of a, some kind of renaissance in recent times. Uh, Anna Barnes winning the Booker Prize for for Milkman. Was was that a turning point or did you have a sense that something was happening before that, Louise? Because obviously that didn't come out of nowhere either. Um, I think maybe something that it did was to make um, editors and agents maybe look up a little bit when um, books by people from the north of Ireland were landed on their desks. Um, I think that that was definitely a, um, a, a thing. And um, I think also she wrote about um, the troubles in a very different way. Um, as well, um, you know, that it wasn't, you, you know, sort of a story that was following some kind of operative on, on um, you know, through muddy fields or something. Um, so, so I think that was probably very different. Um, I don't know. I, I think I think that a lot of the writing that's coming out of the North isn't really about the Troubles as well. I mean, my book is set in 1975, but I didn't think I was writing. Um, I didn't set out to write a Troubles novel. I think on some level I thought I was writing some kind of Kevin and Sadie book, except with a bit more sex. Um, Joan Lingard show. But um, um, yeah, it's just, it, it, it is interesting. But I do think a lot of it maybe is about um, attention that was brought to the place by Anna Burns, and that's not a bad thing. Yeah, and, and Louise touching on it there, there is something about even having to address the Troubles. I wonder, is there this big responsibility on a, a writer from Northern Ireland either to do that or to somehow avoid that. What is the kind of, what's the line that you have to tread there for you, Wendy? I think you have to do whatever you think works for the story that you want to tell. So for some people, it's essential for them to, to engage to engage with the troubles. For other people, it's entirely inconsequential. So um, I think that you know what's great about the writers that are coming um, out of Northern Ireland or the North at present is how diverse they are. Some of them have, you could say, they've got practically nothing in in common. And you know, it's 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 absolutely not incumbent on you to have to deal with politics if that's not what you want to actually look at in your in your fiction. You know, I think what's happened as well is that people have give, been given a confidence. You know, when you see your when you see your world um, presented somewhere, whether it's in a book or whether it's in a TV programme like Dairy Girls or whether it's in a film, it gives you confidence that, that you are, and even if this is wrong, you shouldn't have to feel like this, that you are validated by the fact that you now appear on the TV or that you now appear in books, but it does give people a confidence about their, about their life, you know. Um, remember somebody once said to me, oh, do you think you'll be able to move beyond East Belfast? You know, in your next book, you'll be able to move beyond that. I kind of think, why, why would I want to do that, you know? Um, where are lives more complex and interesting than in these, these streets mm -hmm. around me? So if anything can give people the confidence that their particular milieu is an important one, then great. And another thing that, that really struck me, Louise, in terms of your novel, I was doing a, a little bit of social media taping here the other day ahead of tonight's event, 
And I talked about the nostalgia of your book. I mean, <laughs> you mentioned streaking at one point in it. And when you hear the word streaking, it brings you right back to the 1970s yeah. and every football match that you watched, whether you were interested in it or not, yeah. in the hope that there might be oh, a yeah, bit of streaking point, in some it. some head to take all the clothes off and run through the mud, yeah, the sidelines of a football match. And, 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 and that's not the only thing, you know, you, you have all sorts of mentions of, I think it's the generation game where you're talking yeah. about, you know, where the, 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 pan, the, the, the conveyor belt of stuff yeah. used to go past. And the you had tea's to, made. Yeah, all, yeah. all of that type of thing. So was there as much a nostalgic element to recalling uh, that period in Trespasses and particularly the pub in Trespasses, mm -hmm. which is a major setting for the novel? Was there yeah. as much nostalgia as there was anything else? I think it was nostalgia, but also, um, I mean, I'm having to, all, all the way through this, I was having to work off my memory because um, Belfast kind of stops for me in, in the late 70s. Um, so I, somebody are, uh, said to me, oh, that route that you took, it's somebody who was like under 30, I said, that route that you took up High Street, you can't drive up that way. And I said, well, you, can't, you could then. I mean, <laughs> yeah, so, the, yeah. you know, the, these journeys that, you know, I made from the back of a car as, as a child that were so, um, you know, the repeat journeys, like to my granny's house up the Crumlin Road and stuff like that. They were, like, really burnt into my memory. But if I go to Belfast now, I don't know where the hell I am. Hey, but you, you, like, what kind of memory do you have? Because you're, you, the, the facility for recall here is... Well, I mean, I remember those journeys, but I did have to, I mean, in fairness, I did have to go back and check things. And then there was some, like, great, um, just really great uh, symmetry with things where um, I, I think I'd come across that... Um, uh, that horrendous interview that Michael Parkinson did with um, Helen Mirren that, that, that a lot of people you were watching that, on YouTube yeah. and, um, and when I checked it completely matched the time so it was entirely plausible for Cushla and her mother you know to be lying in front of the TV watching this and yeah, um, yeah and then just I suppose the, the internalised um, sort of misogyny that, that Gina has when she calls Helen Mirren a dirty article and not him. Yeah of course yeah. Um, um, and Cushla you refer to I, I say Cushla but I, I, I've it Kushla, yeah. Kushla. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and her mother Mother Gina, uh, the Laveries are at the, at the very centre of this, and the Laveries pub mm -hmm. is, is at the very. But that pub is completely the pub that we had. I mean, like right down to the tweed banquettes and the baby sham fun behind the bar and everything. Even baby sham immediately yeah. were back there. Well, that was like my drink, you see, because well, it wasn't really. Um, when I was about four or five, I mean, from the age of three, I don't know whatever age. Um, when we went into the pub, um, there was this baby sham fun behind the bar, and somebody had taken me to see Bambi, and this looked to me like some kind of Disney merchandiser. Uh, so I'd say I'll have a baby sham and they'd all fall around laughing because it had booze in it so um, there was a compromise by giving me um, lemonade in a baby sham in, in the baby yes. sham glass so uh, the pub then the physicality of the pub and the description like literally the... where it is looking at a tunnel and at the end of the main street um, I mean it's not there anymore it was demolished I think about 10 years ago um, yeah, the jade green banquette, banquettes, the teak uh, furniture, the um, bits of stained glass and the light and, um, and also just this, this really thick bug of cigarette smoke that hung over everything. The other, side, the other side of it is, however, yes, there's all those lovely, and as I said, they are nostalgic. And, you know, you mentioned TV programmes. I grew up in Monaghan. We saw UTV, mm -hmm. as it was then, and mm -hmm. all the programmes that you mentioned, particularly Romper Room, Romper Room which yeah. was very innocent yeah. in Monaghan, but you bring it in in a different way in the book, and yeah. we'll talk about that shortly. But uh, you, you do bring us into a, a Catholic-run pub in a very strongly Protestant area. So mm -hmm. the politics is there from the, the very outset. How aware were you of that tension in the family pub or was that something that you, you, you started to put on the story with adult eyes, with writer's eyes? Um. I, I was aware of that as a child, really. Um, in 1971, my grandmother had been on her way uh, to the bank to make um, 
a lodgement one afternoon and uh, she was walking past a different pub in the town um, which, in which a device had been planted and it detonated when she was walking past. So she had fairly horrific kind of cuts and I remember that really vividly. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just think there was probably a, a lot of tension around having, having a bar. Uh, my mother worked in the pub my, uh, sometimes in the evening. My father never worked in the pub. He was uh, studying to be an accountant at night. But my mum used to do the odd shift in there. And, you know, I lived within walking distance with my uncles and my granny and everybody who worked there. So it was just very much a, a family thing. But, yeah, it was very fraught. You know, there's a huge um, British Army barracks beside it and the soldiers drank there. And um, I think there's maybe something about having a business in any town where you're very uh, visible, like people sort of know who you are and stuff like that. And, and the other aspect of this story, because the presumption might be Kushla is a, a 25, four or five-year-old primary school mm -hmm. teacher. She does shifts in the pub uh, as well. And yet, if we kind of do half the mathematics at all, and you're talking about being 9, 10, 11, 12 mm -hmm. when you left Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. so Kushla is not you, which is often the thing. People, oh, is she you? Mm -hmm. But what, was there a model for Kushla? Did you have some person in your mind who... Yeah, I, um, I have an auntie who, um, whenever she uh, read the book, uh, my auntie ended up marrying, um, and um, she's in a mixed marriage and she lives up the Malone Road, and she read the book, and when she read the scenes where um, Kushla goes to Michael's friend's houses, she said, is that my kitchen, you bitch? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it kind of was her kitchen. But, um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's... Um, but, but I have to stress that my auntie was younger and um, and um, and as is strenuously denying that she ever went near a uh, man twice her age. I going to ask Married, you, yeah, yeah. you would better explain who yeah. Michael is <laughs> and why Kushla would be talking to Michael at all. Michael, Agnew or Agnew? Cause I well, was I'd say Agnew, but then other people say, like uh, when Breach Brennan reads the audio book, yeah, she I says was listening Agnew, to that. so I don't know, what would you say? Agnew. I'd say Agnew. Agnew. Yeah. So um, explain a little bit about their relationship and how it grows. Um, I mean, okay, so Kushla is, uh, works at shifts behind the bar, and I suppose it opens... Um, uh, when she is uh, running in trying to wipe off her ashes on Ash Wednesday and the usual regulars are lined along the counter and they're a fairly um, kind of depressing lottery mm. if you were 24 and living with your mother who's going uh, mad on the drink and um, I, I guess uh, when Michael comes in he's probably very unlike um, all of the others and very noticeable and um, it probably doesn't take that much to turn her head. I think maybe in early drafts, Michael was a bit more of a kind of matinee idol. But by about draft three, I kind of messed him up a bit. Yeah. And made him a serial philanderer and gave him a bit of a drink problem. Um, uh, but he's, he is, well, is he an attractive man before I go pin I think, he, well, Kushner thinks he's attractive. Yeah. I think that's the main thing, yeah. Kushner thinks he's attractive. What about the, I mean, he's a Protestant barrister. She's uh, the Catholic primary school teacher. There's a kind of a class difference and, and the age difference adds to a sort of perhaps a little bit of superiority on his part. Would you say that's fair to say? Oh, yeah, he totally talks down to her. And I think she's kind of aware of that, but she kind of can't help herself um, or it's too late or something. Yeah. yeah. Which, which I, I wanted to get that idea of that, because I think it's something that's echoed in one of the stories uh, in, your, in your own book. Uh, in, in, in fact, Wendy, uh, the story Gloria and Max different, the age goes the other way, Max is, I think, is he a bit younger than he's the... Young, he is, he's yeah, he's just a young guy, really, yeah. So explain why he is kind of talking down to Gloria, who's the woman who's in the car with him. Well, this, this story, Gloria and Max, is about two people in a car on their way to a Christian film festival. 
And Max is, and I, I actually, this is, it's not, I'm not Gloria, but I did once get a lift with a guy to a Christian film festival. And it's that idea of being in a car in close proximity for a certain period of time with something, somebody you've nothing in common with and you, you would never normally encounter. So um, Gloria works in a, in a care home for old people. And Max is a visiting professor of film at Queen's University. And Max prides himself on being a bit of an expert. He is, a, you know, a film aficionado. He's very, very full of himself. And he, he, he thinks Belfast is pretty rubbish. You know, he, it, it's got the cultural quarter of one street. Um, he thinks Belfast is really pretty poor. Um, and he is, the, he is the urban, you know, intellectual. Um, and he has to pick up this woman called Gloria, who's standing outside a spar. Um, and he looks down on her, he makes assumptions about her, he prides himself on being the sort of person that can see, because he watches films all of the time, he thinks he has got great vision, but he doesn't understand a thing. And she, <laughs> she is none of the sophistication, but she, is, she has intelligence, which he, in a sense, doesn't have. He's got learning, but not a kind of an intelligence. And so what happens is... She is somebody that stays with him. He turns her into an anecdote. You know the way sometimes we mm. do? You know, maybe something happens to you. It's maybe traumatic, but you turn it into a funny wee story that you tell people, and that kind of then strips it of its kind of significance for you. Um, but what he does is he turns her, once he leaves Belfast, this dump that he was glad to leave after a year, he goes back to London, and he turns Gloria into a bit of a joke, but he dreams about her at least once a week. Yeah, because there's a very, there's quite a dramatic incident um, during their during their car trip. But I was interested, and in, you said, while you're not Gloria, please tell me that you were, had the facility to put down the guy who was giving you the lift in the car if he was talking down to you the way, because she, 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 he says, do you know how to watch a film type of thing? To, yes. Me, yeah, you turn on the telly yeah, and you watch she, it is she, what she yeah, says. Yeah, he, he says he teaches people how to, how to watch films, and she says, what, lesson one, turn on the TV? You know, what is there, <laughs> what is there, to, what is there to know? No, the guy that I got the lift with, he had an amazing car. I don't drive, so for me to give, for anybody, to give me a lift, I love it. Um, and he had never had wagon wheel biscuits. Um, he was he was from such a rarefied environment. He was a visiting professor from the states of film, and so I was able to tell him about wagon wheel biscuits. Yeah. <laughs> on, on the wagon wheel biscuits front, I mean, for a long time down south, there were no wagon wheels. There were no opal fruits. There were no uh, spangles. No spangles. No. All of those sweets that did come down. Yeah, no caramax. Yeah, was that a traumatic experience for you when you first moved moved to Nice? Um, that was probably the least of my traumas living in Nice. But anyway, the less said, the better. Um, um, now you're in trouble with Nice. <laughs> no, there, I mean it was different. I think um, uh, it took about three years to get a phone. That was weird. Um, there were two channels. We only had two channels. I don't know why, because it was so close to Dublin. Mm. So it was like RTE one and two. And that was kind of strange. So you, you lost Romper Room, for example, which was... We lost all that, yeah, lost the BBC. Explain what Romper Room was on the telly before we explain what it is in the novel. Uh, so Romper Room was a children's programme that was on uh, UTV and um, uh, it had different presenters. I remember there was one called Jill at one stage, but there was also a woman called Miss Helen who used to get small children to, um, to sing um, songs and, and she'd tell them stories and stuff. Um, but it, um, a really fairly horrific uh, turn, ended up um, being uh, used as a kind of nickname for, um, for a type of sectarian killing in the north, um, uh, where they'd say that somebody had been rompered. So um, it was, um, 
Um, Loyalist paramilitaries used to abduct Catholics and bring them to the back of maybe drinking clubs or whatever, where, you know, they'd have a few pints. I guess it's like the same principle of a mm. firing squad, where it's like kind of shared responsibility, where they'd have this crater in the back room and mm. they'd go in and um, sort of take, um, I don't know, uh, take turns to um, slowly torture them or whatever. Um, yeah, so they were called romper rooms. So that was kind of strange. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, but that kind of, it, it, that is kind of part of the, the Northern Irish humour, and I don't mean to be in any way f um, flippant about what you're saying, Louise, but it is that thing of taking something like the little child's television programme, and you know what I remember most of that was she had a magic mirror that she looked through it, and if she said your name, you were, she said she could see whoever. Did she ever see Wendy, or do you remember it, Wendy? Uh, we, we applied to be on it. My, my mum applied for, for me and my brother to be on Romper Room, but we never made it. Um, I don't know. I think we applied to be on uh, uh, Jim will fix it, and thank God we never got there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that makes it, that makes it into it did, the, yeah. To the I, but, uh, yeah, I remember uh, my sister wrote a letter to Jimmy Savile, and she wrote, Dear Jimmel. And she just thought Jimmel was his name or something. Oh, or is it Jimmel? Jimmel, yeah, dear Jimmel. <laughs> Yeah, but but that 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 Northern Irish humour, which is very much there in in Louise's book, and that that turn of phrase, it's all over your stories as well. Um, is that an observational thing, Wendy, or how it, how do you go about getting that? Well, Sean, I hope you and I aren't going to fall out in this, but I just don't know about this whole idea of the Northern Irish sense of humour. I am just really really wary of attributing any kind of characteristic to any group of mm. people because they're on a particular landmass, or even as well because they've gone through certain, certain conditions. So I think there's, there's hilarious people in the North. There's also very unfunny people in the North, you know, <laughs> extremely unfunny. Um, and so I think you get funny people everywhere. I do, and I don't know. Um, I'm very flattered. If anybody wants to attribute a great Northern Irish sense of humour to me, I'll take a brilliant one. But I, I don't know about it. That sort of essentialist thing, I'm not sure about it. Well, maybe I'm, I'm not so much talking about a Northern Irish sense of humour, but that's the right, wrong way to put it. But is there a turn of phrase that oh, has Oh, yeah, for a, sure, yeah, right, for okay. sure. Oh, well, yeah, we can agree on that yeah, one then. Absolutely, yeah. There's certainly a, certainly a turn of phrase. And I like trying to get that right. And you can see, Louise, you do. Mm. You know, you're trying to just get that would somebody say that you know I'll, I'll turn it over and over again to get it so that you know give me that would you would you give me that you're gonna give me that I told you to give me that you know which way you're gonna get it so it's just right yeah so th that perhaps that is where I'm saying this thing yeah. about the, the Northern Ireland because that turn of phrase has a, a for me often has an innate comedy in it is that fair to say yes I think that's fair to say absolutely there also can be an innate sadness in it um, and and the woman who <laughs> Mrs. D'Alessandro, now her name makes me laugh, I don't know why, Mrs. D'Alessandro, but maybe explain who she is in the, in the short story collection uh, and we'll get a sense of why, um, why she's also a sad character. Okay. Well, Mrs. Mrs. D'Alessandro is a story about a woman who is married to, um, he doesn't exist, this person, but Bobby D'Alessandro, who is Belfast's celebrity solicitor. Um, and so in some way she's living the dream you could say you know she's got the beautiful house on the Lone Road she has got the wealthy husband she has got the beautiful jewellery she has got everything that you could you could say is a sort of a signifier of a successful life and she's not unhappy either she, her husband she knows her husband is unfaithful to her but she's not terribly distressed about that they've, they've kind of got a way of operating that she can accept that but 
She's also got this illicit activity, which is going to a tanning salon. Um, so when she can manage it, she goes across town to a tanning salon. And when she's in the tanning salon, which is a very, it's not a classy place at all, it's really, really lurid in terms of the colours that are there, it's really, really flashy. Um, she goes there and she thinks about a sexual encounter that she had as a, as a teenager. Um, and one of the things I'm really interested in, just generally, is that whole idea of not exactly a midlife crisis. Well, yeah, I suppose I would say midlife crisis. You know, people thinking in midlife that maybe they've missed out on something, and you know, thinking about the things that happened to them in their in their youth. And sometimes people think of the whole midlife crisis as sad. Oh, look, he's bought, he's wearing a denim shirt, or oh, look, he's bought himself a guitar, or a, you know, a, a stupid car, or whatever. But sometimes it's to do with people trying to get in touch with the moment in their lives when they felt most vital, most themselves, most authentic or whatever. And so she, she goes to this tanning salon and in the course of being on the sunbed, she kind of sort of reenacts and thinks about um, this encounter she had with someone who actually um, had been very, another a boy, a teenage boy, who'd been very, very badly burnt in, um, it's not specified, but he'd been very badly burnt in some sort of incident. And this is probably one of the most vibrant um, moments, I suppose you would say, repeated moments of her, of her yeah. life. It's set in the in tanning salon, and the, it, or it starts in the tanning salon. They're getting mm -hmm. ready. She's getting ready, getting herself ready for to, to celebrate her twenty third wedding anniversary with mm -hmm. uh, with with the husband. That kind of location, which is not unlike the kind of pub location, which has a, a, a public aspect to it and characters coming in and out. Uh, are you an observer of such places? Do you go sit with notebook in, in hand? I am so nosy. I mean, my, my kids can't stand it. If we're in a restaurant, I'm just constantly looking at what everybody else is ordering and they, they say, you're embarrassing us, you know, um, would you please just pay attention to us? Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very, I'm very, very nosy a lot, of the, a lot of the time. I don't sit making notes or anything like that, um, but I just, just try to remember. I just try to remember little things as much as I can. Um, the, another story that struck me in terms of the class structure was Gollum, and this is kind of two couples. There's, there, isn't it two? Is it two sisters? Two sisters, yeah. yes. And the class difference, even in, in in a family, is is hugely important in that story. Yes, yes. That's one of the things. Again, I just return to over and over again the whole idea of of, of class and and how significant it is to people and how it determines people's um, lives. I'm sounding like a Marxist, but um, <laughs> in relation to these two, in relation to these sisters, one has married, again, pretty well. Um, the other sister has got a perfectly perfectly happy life in a lot of respects, but she kind of fantasizes about her sister's husband because she thinks life would be so much easier if she was married to, to, to him. And we've got all of her sorts of flights of fancy about, about the husband, um, her sister's husband. And then whenever she sees his shoes, he's wearing those shoes that, you know, they're, they've got little rubber sole that go up the back and it's got little studs. As soon as she sees those shoes, it just all evaporates. Um, the dream cannot be sustained after she sees those particular shoes. So it just all disappears. So it was, it was flimsy. It was flimsy anyway, this kind of mm. fantasizing. But yeah, it's a way of looking of, way of, looking of class at class. I wonder to what extent extent, uh, Louise, you feel that class as much as religion plays into the sort of conflicts that are played out in, in, in Trespasses in your novel? Um, yeah, I think 
I think that maybe in the time that the novelist said it in 1975, they kind of, in a way you can't separate them, but then I think the class is strange and it's kind of interesting in a place where things are divided anyway. Um, so in the 70s, you know, um, I mean, it's well documented that Catholics, nationalists or whatever had, um, you know, um, poor access to jobs, housing, that sort of thing. I mean, education had begun to change and, and that, I guess, was really significant. But um, so Kushla's family are middle class. Um, and then, you know, she befriends uh, the family of one of her pupils who um, are, um, I mean, working class. The, the father's, you know, rarely has work and they live in a big mm. um, estate that people would probably describe as rough. And um, But then when she, you know, so w whenever she leaves, I suppose, the Catholic community that she lives in and goes to, um, to spend time with um, Michael and uh, his friends, she realises that she's not really that posh at all. Um, because, yeah. yeah. But just maybe, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting about yeah. a kind of class system within a class system. Yeah. Well, listen, we've, we've scraped the surface of, of both of your books. Uh, fascinating set of stories in, in, in the case of Wendy and the set of stories called Dance Move and Louise's novel called Trespass. Thank you so much, both of you, for being us. Wendy Erskine and Louise Kennedy. Thank you. We'll be back with live music from John Francis Flynn and more from the Dublin Book Festival in the Q Lane Gallery after these. And welcome back to the Q Lane Gallery in this arena special as part of the Dublin Book Festival. The festival started on Tuesday last November the 8th, runs through until this coming Sunday, November the 13th. Full details of everything happening on the, at the festival on the website dublinbookfestival.com. With me now here in the Q Lane Gallery is John Francis Flynn, winner of both Best Folk Singer and Best Emerging Artist at last year's RTE Radio 1 Folk Awards. And that was all linked into his extraordinary debut album, I would not live always. John is just back from London, and I mean just back from London. In fact, he touched down at Dublin Airport just a few hours ago and then hot-tailed it here to us. Before we chat, let's listen to a song from the album. You're going to perform Lovely Joan. John Francis Flynn there and the song Lovely John, that, uh, the opening track in fact on his album I Would Not Live Always but performed for us live in the Hugh Lane this evening. I said uh, John that you, you literally hot-tailed it from the airport to here but you did make one a vital stop on the way here. I did, I went back to get my guitar, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> you were, and you only, you only had to go over to Sony Batter, so you were only, yeah, 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 yeah. only around the corner. Um, just listening to that song, I, I should, it was Ross Cheney on drums and, and the lovely electronic sounds that we were getting there. It struck me when I was speaking to Louise and Wendy, you know, they make up their stories, and yes, they have the giants of literature maybe hanging about their shoulders at times, but when you sing a ballad, you're often singing a ballad that has been there for years and years and years. How difficult is it to tell a story like that with, with the giants of, who have sung the song before you sitting on your shoulder? Um, yeah, I suppose most of it is just connecting with, with that as opposed to with yourself. 
you know you're kind of trying to uh lose yourself in that and um, and the saint john uh, that that uh, lovely joan song that we we sung tell me a little bit more about it uh, i got it from a recording of shirley collins and yeah it's a traditional it's an english song um and yeah i mean the story's uh, fairly self-explanatory yeah. but uh yeah it's just a, it's a it's a yeah, Shirley Collins mm. did a great version of it years ago. You're working towards uh, a second album, and yeah. I know you were telling me that it's, it's getting pretty much near the completion point, although it might be next year before we get it. What's the balance for a singer like you between those traditional ballads that are handed down to you from generation to generation, whatever way they come to you, and writing a, a, an original song? Um, I suppose my background is in traditional music since I was a child, so that's the kind of... the the you know, that's where I'm coming from, at it from, you know. Uh, really, I was just asked to make an album. <laughs> and you <laughs> and did I it. And I made it. <laughs> so, yeah, like, it's just, that's just what I do. And I know you have gigs up, you'll be playing at Other Voices in December, and you're at the Quiet Lights Festival in Cork on November the 24th, but you're going to give us a, a second song. Yeah. Even just lead us into my son, Tim, if you would. Absolutely. Thanks, Do you tell me a little bit about the song oh, before sorry. you go to it? That's what I mean by lead us in. <laughs> this is a, a Frank Hart. Well, Frank, I got it from actually a, um, a fellow called Andreas Schultz, who's a German singer. Uh, but then counter tenor, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and he he got it from a recording of Frank Hart. I, oh, got, right. I heard it, heard it in the cobblestone at a session. Um, yeah, and it's just a it's an Irish traditional kind of Irish song that kind of an anti-war song, I suppose. Sure, and there'll be no counter-tenor yeah. voice here. There'll be your big bass basso profundo. There we go. <laughs> here we go. John Francis Flynn with my son, Tim. on drums, John Francis Finn on guitar and vocals there with my son Tim. Back with more from the Q Lane Gallery after these. And welcome back to Dublin City Gallery, the Q Lane and this special arena from the Dublin Book Festival. As I said, we are in the fabulous sculpture hall here in the Q Lane with the French Impressionists painting hanging on the walls uh, to my left. And given our beautiful setting, I thought it might be a good opportunity to talk about the links between art and literature as seen on the walls and indeed on the floor of the Hugh Lane Gallery uh, here with us this evening. Delighted to be joined by Jessica Fahey, art historian, to bring us on a tour. We don't even have to walk to see the first piece that we're going to talk about. If the audience here in front of me all turn their heads to the right and I turn my head to the left, <laughs> we will look, um, unfortunately, not quite the view that John Francis Flynn has, who's sitting in front of this particular bust. Uh, he can see the face, but maybe you'd tell us what exactly we're looking at, Jessica. Yes, so we're actually talking behind his back quite yeah. <laughs> literally, but this is a sculpture by the French sculptor Auguste Rodin. So an incredible thing to have and of a writer. So we're looking actually at the back of uh, the head of George Bernard Shaw. 
Um, and it is quite a story, the creation of this work, because we know that both of these characters were, you know, kind of rebels, pushed the boundaries a little bit. And when they were together, they had the difficulty of, um, you know, a bit of confusion with language. Uh, Bernard Shaw didn't have much French and Rodin not much English. So a lot of what was enacted was sort of translated with other people. But one of the things that we do know over the 30 sittings, so there was 30 sittings in total. So Shaw sitting in front of Rodin, who was sculpting him in clay first. He then made a cast of that, then he made a bronze, and then there's also then the marble. Um, but while he was making it with the clay, uh, Rodin had a terrible habit of keeping uh, like sort of water next to him that he'd fill his mouth with. So as he was sculpting to keep the clay wet, he'd spit onto the clay, which of course got Shaw more often than not. And he said he came out afterwards often feeling like he'd been in a rainstorm. Um, but even the sort of interaction between the two, so, uh, you know, there's sort of two different versions of what Rodin said about Shaw. Uh, one is that he was Christ-like, which um, uh, I think might have been an odd thing to say to someone like Shaw, but uh, the other was that he was the devil. Um, so quite opposite, ultimately, and apparently Shaw's answer to this you know, you are the devil, or you look like the devil. He said, well, I am, was Shaw's answer, of course. So Shaw, when he saw this particular version, so the marble sculpted version, uh, said that he felt that Rodin was one of the first people to really see him. So oh. he felt it was a sort of true yeah. representation. Yeah, it is an interesting uh, face when you see it from the other side, although yeah. given those comments, you'd wonder how much the spit of the water was to wet the clay, or was it for other reasons that it's, Rodin... It's very possible. Rodin was not, a, not an easy person, but then you Shaw know, neither wasn't was either. Shaw. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that Shaw said, you know, in relation to this idea of no one knowing who he was, he said that he was never taken in by his own reputation because he was the one who had made it. <laughs> so he was very good at creating, you know, yeah. um, a self-image. And of course, artists, when they're creating a portrait of someone are doing just that. They're but, writing it, or but visually writing it. Obviously, the connections between the Hugh Lane Gallery and the, uh, particularly the artistic and the literary world of the Celtic revival, are a lot of them have to do with Hugh Lane's Aunt Augusta Gregory. Mm -hmm. um, fabulous portrait that I saw earlier on this afternoon. Um, it's, it's hanging here in the gallery, always is. Antonio Mancini's portrait of uh, Lady Gregory. How did this painting come about? How was Mancini asked to do it or commissioned to do it? Yeah, so actually Lane met Mancini in Rome, but they would have had other kind of connections mm. and relationships and things like that. And then ultimately around 1904, uh, Mancini comes over to Ireland to uh, work for Lane on a portrait of him, but also of his aunt and his sister. Um, Mancini, again, wasn't too happy, unhappy artist complaining all the time about the weather. Um, when he paints Lane's sister, Ruth shine he paints her with an orange tree behind her which of course we know is very unlikely to have been something that he's actually looking at in Dublin um, and then another one of the rumours or stories around the relationship between Lane and Mancini was that in the evening because the artist was using too much paint um, Lane who actually was an incredibly generous person but maybe spendthrift in certain ways would go in and take some of the paint off the canvas and put it back onto the palettes <laughs> and the artist apparently never noticed um, It's the art world 
really that nasty, Jessica. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, You see, I think if you, you know, go a little bit behind people are people, they always (laughs) will be. And there's, you know... Wendy Erskine's statement from from earlier on. I agreed entirely with Wendy. Let us not be essentialists about artists either. Yes, yeah. yeah, We have them on this pedestal and these great heroes, but if you Mm. read about any of them, you know, know, none of them were angels. Well, what was was Jacob Epstein like? Because we we also, in, in the gallery, we have a bust of uh, Lady Gregory, isn't it? Or is, mm. it, or is it a full length? It, it is just a bust. Just yeah, a bust, just yeah. a bust. Yeah, and she she wasn't particularly happy with it at all. Um, neither was Lane, in fact, because again, this is Lane commissioning uh, an artist to create an image of his aunt, mm. Lady Gregory, who's a writer. Um, and um, again, Epstein wasn't very fond of Lady Gregory. And later, he wrote an uh, autobiography around 1940s, and he said that she was just this sort of um, rude English woman, so double insult there, and a uh, rude English woman who was only interested in her appearance, which is not what we would expect at all from someone like Lady Gregory. And then the finished result, which I think you're showing on Twitter to those who can see it from home, she does look extraordinarily haughty. She has her chin up and she's very all right. po- sort yeah. of poised. But later, uh, Lady Gregory sort of re-evaluated it and she thought that actually she could see a lot of this sort of energy in the work. It says a lot more about her than it does about, about um Also, about him, he became it? much famous later, so she was an yeah. early subject, so maybe that helped change your mind. And interestingly enough, Mancini, when he, because he came to Dublin mm. to, to paint the portrait of Lady Gregory that mm-hmm. we're speaking, but he went to the Abbey and he saw some of those great yeah. early productions in the, the early years of the Abbey Theatre, Epstein, did he, would he have been aware of her literary background and her probably involvement not. in the National Theatre? Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I, I'd say probably not. I don't and know. And therefore he, he could call her haughty and do what exactly. he Exactly. She was just some snobby lady. You know, he was from a kind of, um, you know, relatively sort of rough background from New York and she was, you know, from Cool Park. So I, they weren't going to see eye to eye, I don't think, anyway. And obviously the Yeatses feature quite um, quite heavily in the collection here. Um, I, I know that John Butler Yeats, there's a, there's a portrait of, of Singh here, but I want to talk about his por- John Butler Yeats's portrait of William Butler Yeats, but you're comparing this with the Sarah Purser portrait, and you mm. think that the Sarah Purser one kind of stands up to scrutiny more than the John Butler Yeats one. I, well, I, again, it comes down to preference, and the Sarah Purser one, I think, gives such an insight into what it was probably like to be around WB Yeats. So his father presents him In a good way or a bad way? Well, yeah, that can be, again, up to each person to interpret. Um, But I know from reading, you know, his sister Lily wrote the kind of family journals, Mm. essentially, and they did have to bow to him a lot, and, you know, even more than they did to their father, who was, you know, much more sort of gregarious sort of figure. But with WB Yeats, he was sort of a nervous energy, and he was always kind of composing in his head and humming and kind of, you know... um, in his own world, sort of. And the version that we get from John Butler Yeats, he is in his own world, his eyes are cast down, you know, he's, um, you know, clearly concentrating. But the one we get from Sarah Purser, well, for a start, it's in pastel rather than oil, so she can work quicker, more freely, and it's so dynamic. It's almost sort of electrified. You feel that you can almost feel the way that he moved, and Mm. um, she really sort of captures something of that... um, kind of nervous energy, creative spirit, kind of good and bad of him, I think. And she knew him very well. Um, She had monthly salons in her house in Dublin, and um, it was said that this was where young men 
went to have their wits sharpened because she did not in any way, you know, suffer fools gladly and she didn't particularly like all his seances and yeah. all that kind of stuff. In, in terms of John Butler Yeso, mm. I think it's worth mentioning as well his portrait of, of Kathleen Tynan because her connection to the literary world of that period is vital and very important. Yes, and apparently someone that WBH proposed to as well and was turned down, not we, just not gone. Can we list the people he didn't propose yeah, to? Yeah, I know. It might be better. It might be better. <laughs> well, we only have a minute and a half left. We could probably get them in in that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yes, she was uh, an extraordinary writer. I mean, very prolific writer, over 100 publications, mm. very close to the Yates family, would even stay with them in London. And uh, he, WB, edited some of her um, poems, which were then printed by Kula Press, which, of course, was run by the Yates sisters, and Elizabeth in particular worked closely with her. And I think she was involved in writing poems for some of their Christmas cards and things. But it's, a, it's an interesting portrait because in photographs she's prettier than she's portrayed by John Butler Yeats. You know? But then again, too. that's subjective too, I yeah. suppose. A, a, a brief mention to Sir John Lavery because mm. he's all over the gallery, obviously. Yeah. Uh, what would you pick if you had to pick one for us to see when we're visiting? I, I, I don't know if it's on display at the moment, but the Lady Heath is one of my favourite of uh, John Lavery's portraits. And uh, Lavery actually is probably the connection between Shaw and Rodin as well. So there's yeah. all this sort of interlinking. But she was the Irish aviator and uh, she was this extraordinary woman who was the first to do many things, not just first woman, but first to fly uh, unaided from Cape Town to London. Took her three months. She crashed. They thought she was dead. She rebuilt uh, her plane. But as an author, she wrote on aviation and she wrote an extraordinary book called Athletics for Women at a time when there was no women allowed to participate in the Olympics unless it was something ladylike yeah. like archery. And then over here, McQuaid and others were saying that women shouldn't run anywhere in front of anywhere, one at any time. Of course. So she was an extraordinary uh, leader right. in the field of aviation. Well, that's, and that'll just whet your appetite for some of the uh, materials that can be seen, maybe not that particular one on display at the moment, but many of the others that we spoke about on display here in the Hugh Lane. And that is it for tonight's show from Dublin Book Festival here in the Sculpture Hall of the Hugh Lane Gallery. Festival continues uh, through until Sunday, dublinbookfestival.com. My thanks to all of our guests this evening, Louise Kennedy, Wendy Erskine, John Francis Flynn and Jessica Fahey, to the Dublin Book Festival director, Julianne Mooney-Siron, and indeed to the Chilean ambassador and the staff of the embassy who are here with us this evening. Thanks also to Barbara Dawson, Niall O'Connor and Darren Reid uh, here in the Hugh Lane. On sound tonight for RT, Tom Norton and Damien Gavigan. The programme was researched by Leah Murphy and Claire Hogan. Amandine Passo-Devine was the broadcast coordinator and the programme was produced by Kay Sheehy. I'll be back at base tomorrow night at 7 once again on RT Radio 1.